Dotnet Rocks episode 598 with guest Mark Ralph. Recorded live Wednesday, September 29th, 2010. This episode is brought to you by Telerik and by Franklin's.net, training developers to work smarter. And now here's Carl and Richard. Hey, this is Carl Franklin. This is Richard Campbell. We are here at Tech Days Vancouver, and we're talking to Mark Ralph. Hi, Mark. Hi, how's it going, guys? Doing fine, I think. You hope? I wave, 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 wave wire. We're standing, we're here by a window with a cruise ship out the window. It's pretty With awesome. the mountains in the background on a beautiful day in Vancouver, you can only be great. I love my job. Do you love your job? I love living here, actually. Yeah, this is your home. And Captain Steubing is on the deck. Yeah, I'm waving at Gopher right now. Yeah, you look at the back there. It, they really are serving cocktails on the Lido deck right now. It's just too decadent. Mark, tell us about yourself. So um, I was the director of the developer group in Canada. And about okay. a year ago, I moved to Redmond to join the Windows Business Group. And so now I'm senior director of what's called the developer and ecosystem team in the Windows uh, group. And so I do a couple, couple of things on the ecosystem side and think of ecosystem as everything that you load onto or plug into your Windows PC. So not just for developers, not just for developers. So okay. actually huge, there's a huge part of my day job that's about every user of Windows. Um, okay. And it started, uh, if you think about it with compatibility, I mean, that was a big part of the Windows seven launch. So we work right. with, IHVs, independent hardware vendors, so printers, scanners, cameras. I love the fact that you don't have to provide drivers anymore, pretty much, for your standard installation. It they is, just happen. It, it's actually, I mean, this is an area where we've learned a lot in the in yeah. the past, uh, to say the least. And the, one of the number one missions was, hey, when somebody gets their new Windows uh, machine and they plug whatever devices that they have, that they're going to have that amazing experience. Right. It's one of the top... You know, you plug your printer in and it yeah. doesn't work. Right. You, it's a quick way to annoy um, your end users. And, and so Microsoft was mocked mercilessly for years by the Mac people for just editing config sys and auto exec bat. And, and you want all that to go away. And, you know, with Windows 7, um, things went really, really well. It was actually a tangible change through the launch of Windows that, you know, a lot of devices were ready. And it's a monumental task to be able to pull that off being Windows. And if you're a Mac and you, control the hardware it's quite easy actually because yep. you have the stack all the way up and down but you uh share hardware uh compatibility with vendors and driver layers and hows and all that stuff it's remarkably complex and there's the sort of the the large number of devices that sort of everyone uses like the popular printer of today yeah, yeah. and then think of like the long tail you know and people have an expectation of you know i bought my printer in 1991 and i expect that to still work and we you know we strive to make sure that that compatibility is there we, we did a really really great job well it's, yeah it's the weirder devices the oddball scanners and the weird old cameras and just started hoping that stuff will actually pl plug in and work well and the device the device manufacturers themselves i think deserve a lot of credit for um really tightening their process around how they build those drivers what's in support you know ba you know base functionality versus advanced functionality and so the other part of my job is sort of adoption 
of, of newer technology. So like with a printer, you can plug your printer in and it just works. So you plug it in and you get device stage in yeah. Windows where you get a very um, uh, a much friendlier, graphics rich, um, more useful way to work with your your devices. We work with a lot of people to drive that and similar on the software side, you know, you know, the software I bought last year is that going to work this year? Now you did mention in your in in your job title the word developer. Yeah. So the so other where does that have? Yeah. The other half of my job is uh, the developer audience, and you know, Windows and developers go way, way, way back. Yeah. Uh, you know, the success of Windows um, was uh, you know connected to the innovation of so many developers over such a long period of time, and you know, we've we've really brought a lot of energy back into how we think about developers, both with Windows itself and the work we're doing with the Internet Explorer 9 platform previews on the developer side as well. So developers has become sort of a, a, a first priority with the, with the Windows uh, group um, ever, since, ever since the launch. So whether it's content or what we do at PDC or how we help developers understand what to build, we're working with people to build amazing apps for, for Windows as well. That's sort of all wrapped into my developer mission. Now, you're part of the Windows team, but yes. you guys have a whole division dedicated to developers, uh, the guys yes. who build Studio and all the languages and all those sorts of things. So yep. how does that work? So know, what, what is the Windows side of that compared to the, the yeah. dev dev side? It's, it's, it's absolutely a collaboration. So um, there's a couple other big groups. So the developer division who build Visual Studio as an example, we do a lot of work with them to make sure when they're doing versions of Visual Studio Express as an example, like are we getting great sample code? Um, you know, what is getting built into the next version of Visual Studio to make building apps for Windows easier and quicker to market? And uh, so we see those amazing apps. And then there's the, the the DPE, the developer evangelism group, who are mm -hmm. the ones, you know, who put on the event that we're here today, who are the feet on the street. And so my job is to help arm those guys with everything that they need to delight developers uh, out in the world. So it's kind of a symbiotic thing for sure. So the, the I mean, it's interesting to look at the, the, the role here because, uh, you know, Everything that, that Microsoft builds basically runs on Windows one way or the other. You know, what you don't see a lot of is built into Windows a lot of .NET stuff. Like the, you know, we were, we build a lot of apps in .NET and we build them on Windows, but there's not, doesn't seem to be the, as many pieces of Windows itself that are built with .NET. Or maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I'm not seeing it right. Where is this .NET fitting in the Windows well, lifecycle? Well, you know, there's multiple paths to building Windows applications and, you know, ma managed code and, and .NET is certainly one of the very popular ways of building, uh, particularly client, uh, code. Uh, for Windows. And so you see the work we did with the uh, API uh, pack so that you can access touch and other features. I'm doing that session today. Oh, excellent. I'm there the presenter go. for that. I'll, for that particular session. I better come session. to your session. Yeah. Um, and so what you see us collaborating with uh, the .NET crew on making sure that uh, managed code developers are sort of first-class citizens and what they're able to light up on Windows. But there's multiple paths. You might be a native C++ developer. There's still you know, I think people underestimate how many lines of code out in the world uh, making money are, are C++ lines of code. And well, and, and Microsoft still produces an awful lot of C++ yeah, on a we given day. We probably are one of the one of the bigger C++ shops sure. uh, on the planet. Uh, and, but then you also have um, what's going on on the on the Silverlight side. So now with Silverlight 4, 
you get um, the Windows extensions for for Silverlight four as well. So Silverlight, particularly out of browser, Silverlight starts to feel a lot like a Windows app. You know, jumpless and webcam support and these kinds of things. And then HTML five. Uh, and we see that in the platform previews of, of IE9 over the, the last couple of platform previews, you know, graphics accelerated experiences through the browser using HTML5 starts to feel a little bit like a web app as well. And that's on Windows. So there are certainly multiple paths. Um, developers often ask me, you know, which, which path should I take? Well, I think the question was what pieces of Windows are built with .NET with managed code? What pieces of Windows itself are yeah. built with managed code? I think that's a question for my friends in engineering a little bit more. I think, you know, obviously a big chunk of Windows itself is, is, you know, I guess if you want to call it native code, uh, right. know, in, in, in itself. Most of it. Yeah. But it, you know, Windows is a, is a platform for developer innovation. I think that's a, you know, I think that's okay. We, you know, um, even third party, uh, runtimes, uh, like some of the work that Adobe's doing, you know, you know, it's Windows as an enabler of a platform for things like that. It's not so much about what Windows itself is built in. And you mentioned HTML5. Are we talking about HTML5 outside of the context of IE9 here? Is there a role for HTML5? No, definitely that? in the context of, of IE9. Okay. Now remember, you know, um, and I, I love this phrase now, you know, building for IE is, is building for Windows. Right. You know, IE is part of the Windows family, um, that experience, you know, there's no denying that the market shows that apps matter. You know, lots of vendors are doing lots of, you know, you can't go sort of two seconds in the day without hearing about apps, apps, apps for apps for this, apps for that. But there's a huge part of the world that, you know, it has moved to the web as well. And mm -hmm. I think the experience of, you know, our customers on Windows is sort of going to be balanced between great apps for certain uh, circumstances and great web apps and, and web experiences. And the work we're doing with IE really is to, you know, to, to really enrich uh, that web experience. But isn't the, I mean, the, I'm beginning to resist the idea that there is the separation of apps and web apps. There's almost no app today that doesn't communicate over the Internet in some way. That's just whether it's the install process or fetching some sort of data. Like, that's just the norm. This really comes down to what kind of client you're building. Are you building an in-browser client or an out-of-browser client? Or a phone client. Or a phone client, yeah. Um, I, I, de I definitely agree. I, I think the number of uh, the number of apps that, you know, what, even if it's just simple maintenance, mm -hmm. you know, reach out, oh, hey, a new version's available. You know, that's going to be a web technology. I think the, the separation comes when, you know, let's take, you know, I just did a session here, here at Tech Days. Let's take, um, uh, casual gaming. You know, right. I think there's, you know, the ad supported, you know, in the browser, you know, moderate fidelity casual game that a lot of people like to use, you know, through their browser. Mm -hmm. And then there's the higher fidelity, you know, full screen, 16 by nine, better audio, perhaps, you know, better support of things like touch casual game that you might buy for five bucks and, and download from the web. Situationally, I think there's a point where you want to take better advantage of the, the device that you're on. Right. Um, so it's partially, I think, a client discussion, but I think it's also partially a device-driven. Um, and the line's getting very blurry. Oh, it's I mean, very blurry. you talk about hardware acceleration for IE9. Yeah, that used to be the claim to fame for the the on 
uh, operating system applications. But if the browsers start picking that up as well, like what isn't a web app? What isn't a regular application? They're all pretty much the same. And it does, and you know, and it also gets into sort of the distribution and discovery, you know. So, you know, certainly things you find on the web are, you know, people have never had trouble finding things on the web. I think, you know, I think the market has proven that. And again, you get into apps you find, uh, you know, apps you might download, apps you may, uh, use in the browser. It's, you know, I think the amazing thing for a developer is, you know, the, the toolbox that, you know, is presented to them. So, I, you know, whereas before you had a sync, you know, if you wanted super graphics, you sort of had one choice and one choice uh, alone. Now that toolbox has been expanded. So if you're primarily a web developer, you wouldn't have even considered, uh, you know, a, a desktop app per se. Right. Um, that line has gotten to the point that you begin to see value. If you're a desktop app person, you may not have seen, you know, I'm not a web person, but hey, you're drifting in that direction. Let you still play with the tools that you're most comfortable with. I think that's a powerful part of the Windows developer message is, is choice. You know, unbridled, you know, choice with absolute no guidance sometimes isn't helpful as well. So we're trying to help people understand where we think the opportunities for developers are on Windows. But So what's the message from the Windows team to developers? So we're thinking about um, a couple of things, particularly three big things. Um, and, and this actually goes to, I think, your point about the blurred line. Mm -hmm. um, my message, I, I divide up into three. So the, the first pillar of that message is, you know, customers want great apps, whether those are consumers, uh, enterprise customers, the market is customers want great apps. And the thing about Windows, Windows is a constant across an amazing uh, universe of devices means that when when people buy that amazing ultra light uh, Windows 7 laptop or that souped up uh, gaming rig or a new form factor um, you know perhaps a slate or a tablet form factor device they're gonna want amazing apps to make their life better to entertain them to get things done at work you know we we just passed you know there's over 175 million copies of Windows 7. Mm -hmm. um, you know people don't know this there are you know there's over 10 million shipping touch units um, uh, in market you know today like huge numbers of sockets for developers to target when they think about hey I've got an app and I need an audience huge audience so the first is do we have those great immersive great user experiences across those devices that's pillar number one pillar number two is Hey, if you're more of a web developer, understand you know understand that we are looking to bring sort of that best web experience to the the Windows user, and you know, and you see it in the platform previews of IE9 um, about what gets unlocked when HTML5 combined with graphics acceleration, sort of how you can really push the limits of what's possible in Is that touch web play experience. in there too. Well, certainly. I mean, IE9. There's I think there's a couple of levels. IE9 itself is is touch aware. Mm -hmm. um, if you if you jump out of the browser and with certain web technologies, you can like you know if you if you want to consider Silverlight as a as a web technology, you can light up other touch factors as well. But it's really you know that that awesome web experience. Um, and it's it's not about Windows. It's really about the developer. Like, how do you differentiate? How do you rise above the noise on in the web to differentiate yourself to help you know you be profitable to drive traffic to you know achieve yeah. your goals as a developer? You know, we we think some of this underlying technology helps you do that. I'm not sure what pillar three is, and you can tell me in a minute. But it sounds like you're talking to the non .NET developer or the non Microsoft developer who 
who uh, that you're 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 trying to convince to write for the Microsoft yeah, I, platform? I mean, I think there is a I think there is a huge crowd of web developers who maybe aren't um, who aren't .NET developers who certainly aren't C++ developers mm -hmm. writing native code. I mean, there is absolutely a recognition like huge numbers of people are becoming web developers, and I think there's a massive opportunity uh, for them to tap into what is a, you know, an immense audience of Windows users for showing off, you know, what they've done. It, it, at the end of the day, for me, it's always, it's about what the, what the developers do and sure. it's not about Windows. That third pillar is the cloud. Um, I mean, uh, the other blurred line is when huge amounts of computation and storage exists in the cloud, I think that perhaps even more there's a need for great um, user experiences on the client to tap into that power in the cloud. I mean, we see it today. I'll use a consumer example. You know, the the Twitter front end clients that give you you know better user experience, better search aggregation of services, but they're powered by those those, those services in the cloud. Absolutely, it's a you know it's a great example. You could see that in business as well. You know, sort of private cloud stuff. You know, uh, business analytics and whatnot being powered front end by that device, but storage and computation in the background. And I, I have to assume your message to .NET developers is keep doing what you're doing. We love you and use Visual Studio. And, oh, absolutely. Yeah. Oh, so, absolutely. Uh, it sounds like the main, maybe the focus from the Windows team is for, uh, is for getting new .NET developers. I think it's about getting new applications for Windows. Yeah. Uh, you know, and I think that each audience of developer, I, I want to be able to uh, both enable them with the tools and content yeah. and, and, you know, maybe it's spreading the love right. a little equally. You know, I could say the same thing about, you know, often you, you'll, you'll meet groups of C++ developers that think that we've forgotten them as well. If you go to the Windows team blog, you know, we launched this thing called Project Hilo, and it was a bunch of sample code to show you know, C++ developers, hey, you know all those fun, you know, spinning carousel controls and great, uh, we did a sample app on photo editing, things that, you know, would be a very traditional sample app for the .NET developer we did for the the native C++ mm, developer yeah. just to, you know, try shed a little bit of... And actually uh, tapping into WPF, like those kinds of engines? Well, I mean, WPF, you know, I mean, there there are huge numbers of WPF developers, particularly in enterprise. Mm -hmm. I mean, I mean, you, you, that's undeniable. So, you, you, there, are, you're gonna want to see those th that group of developers continue to do great things on Windows. Right. And as some of those WPF developers maybe become Silverlight developers, you know, because I think there's a sort of cross pollination of skills. It's all there. XAML in the end. It's all XAML in the end. And those Silverlight developers become Windows Phone developers. You do get a bit of a hey, if you're building that amazing Windows Phone application in Silverlight. Where you know do the companion app for Windows as well, right? Mm. Like it may not be today, you know, a straight shot from phone to Windows, but I think there's a ton of code reuse just in in what you've built around in Silverlight itself. So when we're talking about uh, developing for Windows, does Silverlight fall into that? Is it an exclusionary process, like we're excluding things that run in places other than Windows, or is it because the dot you know dot net is the sort of all encompassing development environment that when, you know, once a developer is using Visual Studio and writing one app type of applications, you know, quite easy for them to move over to another type of application. Well, I, I, with Silverlight, it's certainly not an exclusionary thing. I mean, Silverlight 4, you know, and, and I think Scott and team have done, you know, a really great job making Silverlight light up with a, a num you know, a number of, you know, Windows shell integration as an example. I think 
you know, the seismic desktop guys. Um, Windows shell integration in Silverlight? Yeah. So doesn't that exclude other platforms? Um, I think the Silverlight developer needs to make the call about when yeah. they're run, you know, where they're doing things across platforms and, right. and where they're not. I think it's really the opportunity to say, hey, if you're comfortable in Silverlight, you know, how do we light up, you know, specific capabilities on, on Windows? It's the same as the HTML developer. I mean, you would say the HTML is that ultimate, you know, runs everywhere kind of experience. And I think it's about how we help the developer differentiate themselves to be successful um, about how, you know, I think Windows brings a lot of eyeballs and a lot of traffic and a lot of user base, you know, things that developers want to tap into for their own success um, as opposed, you know, so there are multiple paths um, uh, to success on Windows. I think that's one of the great things, you know, I think there are, there are other good examples of thou shalt write in. Um, we're not we're not necessarily in that camp. Well, and and it's I I get the differentiation part of this. It's like even HTML, different browsers have certain things in them, and often you can get more from a given browser if you are sensitive to what's there and can tweak and tune. And uh, same thing, I think it, Silverlight seemed to be very level when you were running it on the Mac, running it on the Windows, till the latest incarnations. Where yeah. now there's stuff that's you're touching the platform in yeah. a deeper way, and there's things that are going to work and things that aren't. Yep, absolutely. Well, and to that point, I mean, I I just keep coming back to this. I would love to include some Windows Shell things in my Silverlight app if I knew that it would run elsewhere without it. Like I, the minute I tie down my application to Windows, I'm I'm limiting my audience. So I would like to add for those Windows users, yeah, yeah, except you're limiting your audience to 180 million people. But yeah, okay. Yeah. But you know, plus whatever the Mac audience is, and now I'm not limited to 180 million people. Well, and, and I think, well, my point, my point, yeah. you really can't argue with. I mean, it's uh, how can we add functionality to our Silverlight apps for Windows users and still allow that same application to run on? And uh, I mean, it's an uh, that's everywhere an else. Yeah, it's definitely an interesting question for um, you know the Silverlight. Is it an architecture issue? I think it's what the CLR supports. Is you know, I mean, sure, it's sort of a it, it's sort of a product issue for the Silverlight guys. Um, but I, I look at it a different way. Is you know, how can I bring you know, I, you know, I mean, you talk about sort of limiting yourself. How can I help that Silverlight developer sort of mine the potential of, you know, huge, you know, a huge audience of Windows users and, you know, meet their business goals or personal goals as a developer? In the end, you know, your, you know, your business model might uh, call for, hey, I'm going to be a bit more generic across right. platforms. Sure. Um, so I guess the question is, is what are those things that, you know, when we take something like the shell, the Windows shell, is that going to allow me to do something on my application that I would not otherwise be able to do? I think what it allows you to do is hold the attention. You know, you, a user's attention has so much noise around it um, that, you know, you might find that, you know, that app that they will pin to their taskbar, that thing that is easier to open than the other you know, if foo application is easier to open than bar application, you know, are they gonna are they gonna migrate their their time spent? You know, you sort of get slices of a user's attention over the course of the day, and so you know, really, it you know, and I think a lot of developers find, and I hear it all the time, is that you know, first and foremost, it's about um, uh, addressable audience is sort of that higher order bit, and sometimes some of those technology choices 
certainly there's an expertise that you have, but sometimes people will take the tool that's needed to, you know, meet that, you know, meet that personal or, or business objective. And, you know, we're trying to, we're trying to design, you know, our sample code, our content. We launched this thing called developforwindows.com, um, that we would love people's feedback on. We've, we have a developer channel on the Windows team blog. We love, you know, people can leave comments there to tell us what, what we need more and less of. And the C, the project Hilo thing was a good example of people saying, Hey, what about us? Like, you know, don't forget we need more content. So anything that we can do to help make, the tools and the direction better is great, but also help give guidance on like the kinds of apps that are needed. So it may not be, you know, HTML versus native versus Silverlight. I, I would love to have a conversation with developer sets that says, hey, building a competency in touch first applications mm-hmm. is massively important. You know, more and more and more devices of, of every kind, but, you know, particularly in the Windows world, uh, are touch enabled. People are wanting to have touch first. And when we look across the Microsoft developer community, touch isn't just sort of calling it the APIs. There's a, there's a UX element, you know, uh, how do you think about, you know, these applications sort of being finger friendly about size of buttons and uh, gestures and how many steps navigation, all that navigation and visual cues. Yeah. I, the, the that's que- the conversation. I, you, I you hit have. it on for me that the queuing that you should be touching this. Yeah, the, the mouse is not automatically the best way to operate this app. That you and the games guys have learned this years ago. You know, mm-hmm. when things shimmer or shake or you know are just designed in a way that you know that you're meant to go in that direction. Well, how can we spend time, regardless of technology, about what I mean? Because there's lots of choice. Um, we're trying to spend time figuring how we give great guidance on um, uh, helping developers build that competency up. I mean, it's accelerating people building. For phones and mobile platforms, and, you know, touch is sort of a prerequisite. It's getting taught more in, in uh, computer engineering and design schools. Want to sort make sure we're bringing that to the Windows developer community as well. This portion of .NET Rocks is brought to you by Telerik JustCode. If you're like me, you're probably using some productivity add-on in Visual Studio to check, refactor, and test your code. But how'd you like to get a complete list of your solution's errors? on the fly as you type, and not just for the opened files. The new kit on the block, JustCode, does just that for all supported .NET languages as well as JavaScript. It's like having a compiler running all the time, only that JustCode is faster and requires less CPU time. One area where JustCode is definitely better is performance. The tool provides the fastest code analysis and better performance without slowing down Visual Studio. Another reason to try it is JavaScript support. It'll help you read, navigate, and refactor your JavaScript code better than you've ever imagined. Learn more about the features JustCode offers and download a trial at Telerik.com slash JustCode. And don't forget to thank them for supporting .NET Rocks. Uh, stretch a little because you played with Connect today on the Xbox. Uh-huh. I did. This thing's a USB device, right? Shouldn't it be plugged into every Windows box? Shouldn't we just the, getting past touch into gesture-based computing? Well, it you know I think if you take Microsoft as a whole, you know we talk and you know um, you know Craig Mundy you know talks quite a bit about the evolution of the natural user interface, mm-hmm. and I think you know Connect is a great example of one of our teams bringing to life. Some awesome research and development for one, mm-hmm. um, applying it in, you know, in that case to a, a, you know, a gaming scenario. 
who knows where that goes? Uh, who knows where that goes? Well, I'm it's kidding. a USB device. I'm, yeah. I'm going to plug it into my machine the moment I get my hands <laughs> on it. See what happens. Just to see what happens. Like it just, it's screaming for an SDK. My, my best thought so far, and I'm putting on my IT hat here, is because it's got the camera and it can recognize faces. I could put a security policy in place where as soon as there's a second face in view of the screen, it blacks out a window because it's a secured window. So Only one can... guy can look at it at a time. Well, couldn't you do that with a regular camera? Uh, supposedly, I guess you yeah, could. Everyone's got a but, webcam. But it, yeah, it's it, your next million dollar idea. Yeah, or a dozen dollar idea. Anyway, yeah, exactly. But it, there's a. I, I immediately think start thinking about the gesture stuff around the cam, re, re, taking advantage of recognition. Like, there's lots of possibilities so, in the PC context. Well, and, so are you saying it's not limited to Xbox anymore? Well, it, it's a USB device. It's got a USB plug on it. But it's. What does that mean? He just hopes there's a driver, I think. Yeah. I, well, I, I'm I just I'd, can't imagine that there isn't a driver. Because otherwise it would have an Xbox. <laughs> I'm sorry. Yeah. Well, I was going to say, where I'm, this is I'm going. I'm excited about this. Well, the connect, hey, connect is. It's epic. It is, it is absolutely epic. I think what it reinforces. And so take touch. You know, everybody's phone, you know, device, it, it, people start to become comfortable with that kind of natural inter interaction. I think the interesting thing to talk about Connect is today, it, you know, it's, it, it's, it's still in pre-release. It's we new and weird. You know, it's new and weird. But imagine years from now when everyone spent a lot of time working with their Xbox in that kind of way. You know, what potential, you know, what kind of potential does that open uh, for developers? And, you know, if that SDK ever came around, what, you know, it's, it's also like user acceptance and, yeah. you know, and, and well, where I feel like you were mocking me about this in New Zealand, right? We had a GPS unit in the car we had while we were driving and I reached up to try and scroll the screen with my <laughs> finger. And now what? And he's like, dude, it's not a touch device. We're already expecting things to be touch or the little mouse. You know, I was in a buddy's car and it's got this. He was like, Oh, look at this great new mouse for navigating the car stuff. And you just sort of say, seriously, this should all just be touch yeah, screen why is this touch and so i think the evolution of natural interface in a number of ways touch motion video speech we'll just get to the point of uh, when you get to a sort of a critical mass then developers use that as a base for amazing things well see we're starting to see that regular production pcs mo regular monitors have touch built in yeah. like pretty quickly you're not going to be able to buy a machine that doesn't have touch. have you seen the 3m add-on monitor no so it has um, I'm going to get the stat wrong. I'm going to lowball it because I think it's actually higher. So the 30 points of touch, mm -hmm. I think it's actually more. Um, but it actually allows for incredibly accurate targeting. And it's an add-on. It's a USB device as well, right? You plug it into your VGA port. You plug it into your what? USB port. And bang, you've got this incredible multi-touch. So we use them for all the, like all the touch demos you see now. There's a behind the scenes tip for you. You know, it's the, it's all these add-on monitors that are, mm. and they're capacitive. They're, they're fast. Um, are they big? They come in, you know. The, How big does the 3M come? I think it's in the sort of high 20s and 30s size, right? So not much different than what you'd have as a desktop monitor. Sure. You know, plop that down. I got a 30-inch of, of those. I'm I'm going to have to You're spend in. a little money. There you go. Yeah. No, and as you said, it's just becoming more and more approachable to get the, these kind of touch devices. So we'll see them everywhere. But I I, I hope that, that gesture computing is imminent, like next year. We start seeing yeah, touch is, this um, sort of thing. Touch is a like top priority focus for us. Um, and it's why arming you know, and prepping the developer community for amazing touch experiences is so important. I just wonder um, if we're going to bypass it directly to gesture. Doesn't, doesn't Connect show the way to not have to leave your fingerprints on the screen? Potentially. 
Potentially. Right. I mean, the same basic movement, but I don't actually have to t- yeah. contact the screen. It could go with a uh, sort of a, a safe, like health-wise, you know, because, you know, people are getting sick by sharing their iPads. You know this, right? <laughs> That's right. It's, your, it's a real problem. It's the, it's the answer for the flu. Is there you go. Everyone needs to connect, and then the flu goes yeah, away. Right. I lo- yeah, I love the prospect that. Insurance will pay for it, right? That's right. It's perfect. Well, they would in Canada. I don't know <laughs> all the iPad, you know, All the iPad users are going to get sick at the same time now. That's what's going to happen. It's all this touching of your screen. No so, sharing. So device. again, to recap, the the Windows team is interested in getting developers to write more Windows applications, or to write. If you've never written a Windows application, you want them to write now, and that does not exclude ASP.NET. That does not exclude Silverlight. We believe in if if it's yeah developer choice. Yeah, there's a couple. I think I think there's four obvious paths to developing a Windows. Native Win32, managed code and WPF, HTML5 and Silverlight. But seriously, I mean, managed code is what 90% of the development's being done in. What are you talking about? Yeah, particularly yeah. in the enterprise. In the enterprise. Particularly yeah. in the enterprise. Business I think you still see, I, and where I'll push a little bit is on a lot of the consumer scenarios. You don't see that managed code. Games base. aren't built in yeah, Games aren't built in that. A number of productivity suites aren't. And, I mean, that's that was the tool that those developers chose, and mm-hmm. I don't think it's a comparison point because right, you right. end up with great experiences in the end. But particularly, you know, if you're in an enterprise that's standardized on .NET, there are amazing things that you can do on a Windows Seven machine for your for you know as apps for for your uh, uh, user base. Let's talk about Java. Yeah. Okay. I don't know. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah. This brought the conversation to screeching halt. <laughs> no. Um. Uh. You know. Java is looking really long in the tooth these days. Uh, there hasn't been a lot of innovation in the language, at least in terms of some of the things that you would expect to happen. And I imagine there's going to come a time when uh, a lot of these companies are going to want to port their Java applications to Something to else. C-sharp. Do you see a new wave of, of porting and uh, uh, coming? Um. I think it's a, I think it's an interesting it's an interesting premise. I mean, it, uh, I, I mean there is a huge Java community, many of whom build great things that run on Windows. Like there's no J Sharp well. anymore. There's no J Sharp. Um, I think there is a move to. I, I think there are, are moves to certain technologies. Um, we haven't seen. I mean, I haven't seen it. I haven't seen it. I guess would be my point. It's plausible. I haven't seen it. Okay. Um, what do you think about that, Rachel? Yeah, I think it's an interesting thought and, and we, your interesting point that how many, the majority of Java implementation apps are running on a Windows box, right? I mean, that's, yeah. uh, that's the whole thing. Java's an interesting place with the Sun acquisition. So we'll see what happens. That's a whole other show. Well, just even though the whole versioning problem of the JVM yeah. was solved in .NET 1.0, you know, side by side CLR. Yeah, exactly. Solves so many problems for Java programmers. Well, and, you know, and uh, I mean, I, I hope those Java developers still love Windows as well. There's <laughs> things we can do to help them. I'm happy to help everybody. Uh, about 64-bit. Aha. Because we are starting to see, we, the Office team produced a 64-bit version of Office, which I think is an interesting milestone, although I, I don't know what adoption looks like. Uh, I run it. But, yeah, the, I do definitely see, we certainly, we've all got 64-bit on our desktop now, but we're developers. Right. Couple of things on 64-bit. Um, something you may not know: for the first time 
um, in a release of Windows, there's parity between 64-bit drivers and 32-bit drivers. Certainly something I've noticed is that yeah. I so, made I made 64-bit XP work, and it just about cost me all my hair. And now you're in a point where you actually have to go and like check. You know, if you walk up to bit. somebody's yeah. machine, you got to go check, and, and in a way it really doesn't matter. So yeah. there's sort of a, a base bit of work that we did that says you know you, there's a comfort in running either. Then there's chip architectures where the support of 64 bit is like massively prevalent. Mm -hmm. And as people, you know, particularly enterprises start to do, um, they start to do deployment, 64 bit ends up on their desktop. Right. So then the question is, how do developers unlock apps? So four gigs of memory. Well, yeah. A lot of, for a lot of apps is a lot of memory. Um, I think for virtually every app, it's a lot of memory. Like, you know, if you need more than four gigs of RAM in your application, what are you doing there? And I mean, you could be Especially predicting a web app. Yeah. To predict, yeah. <laughs> you mean you're predicting the weather or you're calculating, you know, some, something massive. We got supercomputers for that. There's stock, there's stock, uh, uh, portfolio analysis. I mean, you see all these sort of, you know, uh, giant Excel tables and SQL tables that get, uh, calculated. I think there is a challenge of, you know, the scenarios that require right. it. But what I'm really proud of is I think the days of a developer, no, thinking that 64-bit was sort of this like weird side silo that, you know, you're basically doomed if you build a 64-bit version of your product are gone. Right. And now you see absolute sort of mainstream support. We, Richard and I have sort of been beating this drum about what's a, when's appropriate to use 64-bit for your apps and when not. And we always come back to this, but we're never going to stop beating this drum because we know there's people out there who aren't doing it right. Yeah. Well, the big thing is, well, in, the, in Studio 2010 changes, which is get away from the compile any default. Yeah. I mean, if you're not going to actually do testing on all the platforms, you can't go compile any. But, uh, I mean, the vast majority of the apps I've seen these days are running on 64-bit OSs, but they're compiled as 32-bit. Right. Because they don't need the memory. They don't want the extra footprint. And they run faster. Shh. You can't say that. Yes, I can. They run faster. <laughs> I don't know if that's always it's like i want to we'll have we'll we'll have yeah. to set that up in the i'm lab sure i could see. build you a demo that would contradict that and prove it right like there's uh, all those scenarios there it's a bit of an implementation thing. okay but yeah is it the i think the more salient point is it's a heck of a lot easier to build apps at 32 bit but it is nice to run an os at 64 bit and have access to far more resources and you know when you look when you you go online to buy a new pc the configurations are predominantly 64 bit as well mm -hmm. i mean you see uh, OEMs moving in that direction. Um, you know, it helps them, uh, you know, with the, you know, often they will have an, a single image for a machine if, if they're, if that's the chipset that they're in. But yeah. uh, the great thing is that it's that a customer doesn't need to worry. I mean, the drivers that they want are going to be there on 64 bits. And then when the developer finds the reason, the app where they need 64 bit, they're not compromising the user's experience they're saying hey you have to run this weird 64-bit version no it's hey it's your machine it's no big deal so i got a question for you yeah when i'm creating a 32-bit windows application in visual studio let's say or just in c sharp or VBNet without visual studio and i use the the built-in api to return me the program files directory it returns me you know, whatever my users are slash program files, not program files x86. Hmm. The quiz on the individual API. And that just drives me crazy. I will take that directly to those who need to know. 
They'll I fix have it the for power. you, Carl. They will. I have the power to take that feedback. <laughs> I, back. I'm certainly glad you did. I will. And maybe you can prove me wrong in the process. Maybe it's been fixed and I just wasn't paying attention. So is there anything for us to talk about as far as Windows 8 is concerned? Because we enjoyed Windows 7. That was a lot of fun. What have you done for me lately? I hope you're still enjoying oh, yeah. Windows no. 7. Oh, yeah. I'm still hunting down machines in, within my life that aren't running Windows that's right. 7. I, I, that's, that's my support rule as well. If yeah. you're not running I'm not going to talk to like you. It's like our babysitter you know, was over and she had like the, you know, this you know, machine. It was needed a clean. I said... It's now under my supervision. I'm going to we're going to put Windows Seven on. Right. You're going, to, you're going to bring it up today. Yeah, that is the rule. Yeah, there's a massive amount of momentum for Seven. You know, you see enterprise deployments. You see, you'll have a you know the holiday season and the back to school season of yeah. great Windows Seven machines. We're always thinking about the future. There's, and there's a lot to think about and a lot of feedback. And Wait, so, are we those, expecting a service pack one? For for, for Windows Seven, we'll, we will get to that point. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's going to be a little time yet. I don't, I think it's going to be, uh, you know, I, I don't think there, there's going to be much to talk about. I right. mean, that's another great thing about the OS is that it's been very stable. There hasn't been a need for, you know, a lot of, a lot of, uh, fundamental change, which I think is a very good thing for a lot of IT professionals. Sure. Not into, or, and also compatibility, you know, you're not looking at sort of, um, uh, uh, you know, massive changes, service pack over service pack. But, you know, that, that time will certainly, uh, certainly come. People like to have. Well, and the, the more machines updates. that run Windows 7, the yeah. more edge cases you find and you get tweaks and tunes and they turn into hot fixes and eventually well, into we, a service we have pack. a commitment to updates. And every now and again, you want to roll those together and just make it instead of downloading 10 things, you download one thing. So Windows 8. We love the future. <laughs> There's lots of future in Windows. Jazz hand. Yeah, no, watch his feet go, man. This is impressive. <laughs> is there any broad strokes or themes you can talk about coming out of the ideas around eight? Not around the ideas out of eight. I think our view of the future comes back to you know how people use their machines and the form factors that they want. I mean, I'm surprised you guys don't want to ask me about sort of like what's coming a cooler even a little bit sooner. And so we think about you know what well, we thought those questions were off limits. Actually. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, you can, you can, I can give you bigger hints about what's coming sooner. Hardware wise, hardware. But you guys don't own hardware. We do a lot of really great work with our the OEM partners. So are we talking about tablets? There are some that you will see. Um, you know, and, and our boss, Steve, uh, has talked about this uh, several times. You're going to see some great form factors coming. I mean, the thing that, you know, we certainly believe in is that Windows enables all, all of those form factors. People love having the capability. Right, w pad. A w pad. We're going to see a W pad. Let's gonna, just cut right. I'm going to run out and register the URL. There you right go. Yeah. W pad. But there's actually stuff going on today. Like, uh, I'll, you know, I'll give you a, Canadian example, since we're here in Vancouver, you know, there's a company in Montreal called XOPC. They've been doing work with one of our uh, original device manufacturers who builds a slate form factor, atom processor machine. They've been doing some work on with developers for great apps for that machine. So, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a, you know, it's a good experience. And I think we're going to build from there. We're going to continue to see devices coming from OEMs that continue to push the limits. Intel's spending quite a bit of time, uh, thinking about their chipsets. So getting, Lower power chipsets, uh, you know, dual core, uh, uh, roadmaps for some of the low power stuff. So you're going to see the, 
the form fact, like the lower power form factors, be able to do a lot more. Uh, what sure. the graphics capabilities? The OEMs, you know, they absolutely hear the feedback from customers and know the form factors customers want. You're going to see, so you're going to see those, and you're going to see great, great Windows devices in that area for sure. The you know the the other hardware side talking about Intel is this huge number of cores in our desktop machines. AMD shipping a 12 core yep. processor now, and the number Our laptops got eight. Yeah, the numbers are just going to keep going up. Yep. I and I wonder about how effectively when we have 24, 36 cores, 48 cores in our desktop machines, how well Windows is going to be able to utilize them. Yeah, and I there's sort of the the um, underneath the hood guts of Windows, and I actually feel pretty good. I mean, when you look at how Windows has evolved from you know multi-core today, 64-bit support. When you look at you know um, what the guys on the server side have been able to do, I feel pretty confident in Windows being able to harness the horsepower of all you know everything that the silicon uh, manufacturers are able to throw at us and the form factors that they bring. Um, but I think. Uh, developer, I mean, it's a little bit like the touch issue and the 64 bit issue as well as, you know, how, you know, how, how do, how does your average developer just wanted to do a simple app to harness that full power? And are we doing enough in terms of samples and guidance and is tools? Is the parallel group really closely tied to the Windows group? I mean, it seems like they'd have to be a Oh, little at an bit, engineering level, certainly. They have to sure. be very close to the Windows group, I mean. And there's a, you know, and there's a tooling implication. So I, I think as the machines can become more capable, you do get this interesting you know and and maybe the future becomes in a uh, I mean I love the Visual Studio Express uh, SKUs because you know if you're looking for something you know simple quicker to market you know perhaps you aren't as interested in in mm-hmm. um, uh, uh, you know really reaching un- under the hood and taking capabilities in the machine or maybe you are still capable with those products you have you know at that level you have a uh, full blown Visual Studio I think that it has deeper support uh, for what the OS can bring so you, you, you sort of you know not every developer wants to think about you know, 24 processor. Uh, let me let me ask you this: Are there any research projects that you know of where they're talking about redesigning the kernel to be more programmably multi-threaded? That I know of, no. But I'm, you know, there are a lot of people much smarter than I working yeah, on very big things. It seems like it's such a big task to attack from the top down. You know, the parallelism group is maybe who we should be talking to there, but. You know, I, the, I mean, in Windows, I mean, the engineering group, I think, does, spends a lot of time thinking about how to make sure that that engine's running as well as it can. So I'm, I yeah. am positive that that kind of work is going on. Well, and it's not like multi-core snuck up on us. It's been going on for a while. It's just, it seems like we're getting to that critical point where we're going to have a significant number of cores in, in run-of-the-mill machines imminently in the next couple of years. I just wonder if there isn't some fundamental design change coming in, in the, in kernel design uh to to just be m- more concurrent from from the ground up and that's what i'm thinking yeah it's a, it's an interesting problem where the other i don't see any other dramatic hardware shifts are there other things that are going to shift the sand from under us and the way we think about machines i think i think we've covered the big ones i think yeah. it's touch i think it's the variations on a slate tablet mm-hmm. uh, kind of device i you know, I anticipate there's going to be some interesting takes um, on that. Um, you know, whether you need a keyboard, whether you don't need a keyboard, mm-hmm. um, whether you need a pen, whether you don't want a pen. Um, I- I've actually heard some people, it's an interesting resurgence of, hey, now if everyone feels comfortable with a 
with a with a tablet slate form factor. I would really like my pen back to take to to take notes. I was reading across a few of the blogs right. um, yesterday where people were commenting, particularly in enterprise scenarios, that you know having that stylus back. Um, not that it's gone. I mean, there's dozens and dozens of great OEM machines where that's where that's available today. And so there's sort of a, a you know a user awareness of the form factors uh, we see. I think the chipsets are interesting. Mm-hmm. I think the the lower end of the chipsets are going to become ever more capable. I, you know, I think there's sort of an, a continuing march there. And on the video side as well, you see some interesting developments on what uh, the GPUs can do as well. Well, astronomical horsepower GPUs, way more than most people can even use. So maybe, maybe. depends how many fish you want in the IE9. Nice, uh, yeah. Uh, test Damn. drive demo. <laughs> I want five million fish. That's I right. By GPU on a 65-inch plasma screen touch touch screen. yeah that's right well uh i guess that's about it mark thanks a lot for talking thanks so us. much for having me guys um i will say go to developforwindows.com that's my parting developforwindows.com uh, developforwindows.com it's sort of our front door into there's lots of developer uh focused content for windows but and even if you are a windows developer a dotnet developer is this still a good yeah. place to go yep head on over okay thanks very much mark. hey thanks guys all right we'll see you next time on dotnet rocks .NET Rocks is recorded and produced by Pwop Productions, providing professional audio, audio mastering, video, post-production, and podcasting services. Online at www.pwop.com. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter and offering custom on-site classes in Microsoft development technology with expert developers online at www.franklins.net. For more .NET Rocks episodes and to subscribe to the podcast feeds, go to our website at www.dotnetrocks.com. Got a transmitter band by the FCC.